Well, hey, good evening. My name's Jared. I'm excited to be with you. We're going to finish our series on the Old Testament called Clarity because we believe that God does want us to have clarity in something as confusing as the Old Testament. Tonight we're in Numbers 32 and we're talking about the promised land. We'll get into that in just a minute. Can we give it up for Coco? She helps run our institute, the internship. Really awesome. I mean, it, it really is such a cool thing to see and see people kind of step into that. Um, my wife and I, when we were in, in college, we both did an internship um, with kind of a parachurch organization, this thing that pulled churches together and did this thing for youth. And um, it was based out of St. Louis where we lived. Um, but we, they had like a staff member in Springfield, so we took a trip at the beginning of the year to Springfield. And, and it, it, it was one of the most challenging and growing things that we've ever done, so I'd encourage you to do it. But on this trip, we had like maybe eight or nine interns that went with us and then two staff members. So we were in this like church classic 15-passenger van um, and we're on our way back, and I don't think we've made it past, like, Stratford. And somebody starts telling, uh, one of the staff members for the internship starts telling, like, kind of, like, funny stories that have happened at this event that we help host. And, like, some of them were, like, kind of gross, like, medical stuff that was, like, grossing people out. And this girl that was in the very back was like, guys, we, can we stop, please? And the guy who was telling it was like, so anyway, and just kept telling the story, and, and, and she finally like moved up to the front, and, and, and the guy kept telling stories. He was in the passenger seat, kept telling stories, and finally, she had gotten either so car sick or something that she, uh, she got sick and uh, let him know about it on accident, and, and uh, it, it ended up on him. And it was one of those where like, we stopped on the highway, we had one bottle of water to like, clean this dude off, and we're like, oh my word, what is happening? And uh, she was like not feeling well, and he thought it was a joke at first, because he was like, we, you know, I had the long play of like, oh, I'm not feeling good, I'm gonna move up to the front, moved up to the front, and then like, thought somebody like, poured water on him or something, that wasn't the case. Well, this was the beginning of what should have been a three-hour trip from Springfield to St. Louis, and it ended up being something like seven or seven and a half hours where we're waiting by the side of the road for people to get cleaned up. We drive a little further, and it's like, we got to stop at a gas station. We stopped at a gas station, and the person got sick again. And we're like, okay, what, what medicine does this gas station have? And we bought some, figured it out. And uh, we, we drove a little further. I think we made it to like Marshfield's Walmart. And we stopped there for a little bit, and we made, and like almost every gas station, Walmart that we were, that we were passing, we were stopping at, that there's like an understanding of one of, our, one of me and my wife's friends has thrown up either in the field outside of the parking lot or in the bathroom in that, in that deal. And it was, it kind of got to the point where we, once we finally got to like Lebanon, Rala, we were like, I guess this is where I'm going to live now. Like this is, I guess we're just going to set up shop. It might just be easier to just get a hotel here for the night, but we made it home, seven and a half hours, took forever, and I think everyone was fully, completely exhausted. And uh, what we've talked about with the Old Testament, what D. Chan talked about last week was the wilderness. They took what should have been a two-week trip and turned it into a 40-year wandering. So I'm only imagining that there's like a cactus that they've passed that they're like, man, I know that cactus. I'm going to make a mark on I'm going to put my initials on it this time. JB loves TB. Still there, that's the same cactus. Like you're getting frustrated and you pass it 17,000 more times that year and you do that 39 more times and you're like, what's going on? So what the promised land is, is God's good gift of land to the Israelites. It was promised and you see it all the way through. You see it to Abraham in in Genesis 12. God promises this land and and promises that he would have a a people, a family that would be more numerous than the stars or the sand on the seashore. Um, He he makes this promise to them and then Isaac and Jacob 
He makes the promise of a promised land to them, and it always seems like it's about to happen. There's years where it doesn't happen. They're in captivity in Egypt. Things are happening, and they're still not in the promised land. And finally, Exodus happens. They leave. They're they're wandering in the desert. Leviticus happens at Mount Sinai. And Numbers is like, they're finally almost there. And you read Numbers, and it's like some laws and some different things. And you get to the end of Numbers, and Numbers is uh, them. It's God telling them, hey, you're going to go to a new place that's my land, so I'm going to give you the way that you can flourish there. It's God's gift to his people telling them how you can have life and have it abundantly there. And the story that we're going to learn tonight is that they're getting ready to walk into the promised land, getting ready to walk into this place that said that it was flowing with milk and honey. It says it's this place that they have looked forward to for generations and generations and generations and probably heard stories of and probably heard how great it could be. And they're getting ready to walk there. But what we're going to read about tonight is a hiccup. And you read it and we're almost going to like hit our heads with our hands and go, why in the world would anybody say or think and do this? But I think that there's some pieces to this because I think you look at them and you're like, you're settling. Like you're settling for something less than what God has for you. But I think we settle for less than what God has for us all the time. And we don't know it. I think we do it all the time. So I'm going to read Numbers 32, 1 through 5. This is what it says. It says, now the people of Reuben, now, now know that they're, they're like on the edge of a river, and the other side of the river is the promised land. So they're, they're within it. And what just happened in, in Numbers 31 is that there was a people that had occupied the land that they needed to get through, and God gives them victory over it. And if you read through 31, at, at the end of 32, it just starts talking about how much God gave them. God's blessed them. He's been good to them. They, they won this battle, this war, and finally God's like, you're going to have everything that you need more than you've ever known wandering in the desert I'm going to give to you. And he does that, and we come up on Numbers 32. So it says, now the people of Reuben, this is one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and the people of Gad, another one, had a very great number of livestock. And they saw the land of Hazor and the land of Gilead, and behold, the place was a place for livestock. So the people of Gad and the people of Reuben came and said to Moses and Eleazar, the priests of the chiefs of the congregation, this is, the, this is where you get to some fun names, Adaroth, Dibon, Hazor, Nimrah, Heshbon, Eliah, Sebum, Nebo, and Beon. So if you're getting ready to name any kids in the room, those are some great ones. This is what they say. They say, the land that the Lord has struck down, that we just won, before the congregation of Israel, is, the land, is a land for livestock. And your servants have livestock. And they said, if we have found favor in your sight, <clears throat> let this land be given to your servants for a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. And you hear that story, and you're like, they're on, like, they're on the edge of the river. They've just won this big battle. God's just given them a victory. And they look around, and they go, listen, we've got livestock. This land is for livestock. We should stay here. And you read that, and you're like, they have waited for a generation. They have sat still for only a small amount of time. I can only imagine the need of like feeling the, the pressure of like, we don't have a home. We don't have a place that we can sit. We don't have a place that we can like bed down, that we can call our family home. We don't have it yet. And they finally get to the edge and they're like, this place is pretty good. And they settle. 
And we read that and we're like, how in the world could you be? You're like within eyeshot. You can see it. You're right on the edge. <clears throat> and you don't want it. How in the world? Like, what do you do? I think we look at this and we're like, that's ridiculous. That doesn't make any sense. But I think we settle for less all the time. They, they had a place that was called uh, flowing with milk and honey. That would have been an established abundance. If you were given a new land, that, that wasn't a thing that was like, you, you got to cultivate it. You got to knock the trees down. You got to make a place for your animals. You, you got to do a lot of things. And they're like, listen, milk and honey, the place has to be established. It has to be ready to go. It has to be set up already. And it was done. It was established abundance versus what they know now and what they think is best. They settled for what they thought was best instead of what God had promised them. And they said, I have livestock. This place is for livestock. And you read that and you're like, okay, I get that that was probably the way that they make money. But if you would say, I have fill in the blank, what would you fill that in with? It's probably not livestock. If you own some cattle in here, you're probably uh, a farmer. But that's still the thing that makes you money. There's still a thing that is connected to money for you with that. That, that you might be here and you're like, okay, I, I have money. I see a way to make money. I gotta stay here. And I think we end up telling God, God, I can't, I can't go across that river because I see a way for success here. This is, this is what I know, and this place is good for it. I have livestock. This place is good for livestock. Can I just stay here? God, I want to make money. I found a way to make money. I think I can do it here. Maybe you wouldn't say I have money or I have the desire to make money, but you have the desire for a relationship. You have the desire to be loved, to be known. And I think that's a good desire that God gives us. But I think sometimes when we put that as like, I have this desire and I want it. And you see an avenue where that can be it. You drop whatever it is that God's promised you and you say, this is where I want to plant my feet. Maybe for you, it's the idea of success. Man, I, I just want to be successful. I just want people to think of me as a success. And I want success, and this is a place where I can have it. So I'm going to plant my feet here. This is where I'm going to call home. And you look at what God offers, and you say, I'm not willing to cross the river. I want this to be home. Maybe for you, it's just an experience. You're just living life. You're just living your best college, post-college life, finally making some good money, full-time job after college. And you're like, man, I had these dreams of going and doing these big things for God, but now I'm making some money, and I can kind of plant my feet here because this is good. And we look at what God offers, and we say, no, this place is good for it. Maybe it's the perception of others. Man, God, I would go and do that, but that would mean that people would change their view of me. It would change the way that people perceive me. It would change, if I went and did that, they'd think I'm like some radical Christian. They'd think I'm something different, and that's not me. I, I, just, I just want to quietly serve God. I've told God that before. God, I don't want to be loud. I just want to quietly serve you, do my thing, live under the radar, and you live for the perception of people, but what we're doing in those moments is we're saying, God, I, I want perception of people 
This place is good for the perception of people, so I'm going to plant my feet here and not go to what God's called me to do. How would you fill in that blank? What do you have that maybe is keeping you from taking this step into what God has for you? I want to read you Luke 9, 57 through 62. This is Jesus speaking. And it says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What what Jesus is doing is showing them, if you're going to follow me, it's going to have to be not just the number one priority, it has to be the priority. It has to go above and beyond every other priority that you have. He's letting them know, oh, you'll follow me anywhere. Okay, because sometimes I don't have a place that I call home. Is that okay with you? Are you good with that? And in 59 to another, he said, follow me. But that person told him, he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And it sounds like my dad just died. I got to go deal with that situation. But what, what the argument is there is not let me go and bury my father who has just died. The argument there is let me wait for my father to die so I can accept his inheritance and then go. It's an attitude of let me be financially set and then I'll go and follow you, Jesus. And Jesus says to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said to him, I will follow you, Lord, but, f- but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow looks back and is fit for the kingdom of God. What, what this person's saying is like, let me raise my family first. Like, these are good endeavors. It's not bad to want to bury your father, to have an inheritance, to make money. It's not bad to tell Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. It's not bad to say, I want to raise a family. These are not bad things. These are good things that God is saying, but, or that they're saying to Jesus. But Jesus is responding like, if you're not willing to make me the priority, you, you are not really following me. And it brings up the verse that scares me every time that says, Not all who cry, Lord, Lord, will enter into the gates of heaven. And that scares me, but it also lets me know that it's not just this lip service of, I'm on my phone, I'm hanging, yeah, I know I need Jesus, so, hey, Lord, if you can save me, that'd be really great. Now I'm going to go walk this way and do my own thing. It's a lip service. God, hey, I need Jesus, I'm going to say the prayer so that I'm covered and I'm good, and then I'm going to go and live however I want. That's not following Jesus. That's not what God is asking for. But that's what these guys want to do. These guys are wanting to follow God this kind of halfway. Can you imagine going all that way and stopping on the finish line? It seems so ridiculous, but I think we do it all the time. We see that, man, I just need my heavenly fire insurance. I just need to know that when I die, I'm going to heaven, and then I'm set on this life. I can go and live however in the world I want, but God is saying here, there is so much more to life than just accepting fire insurance from God, so I know I'm not going to hell that, God, that Jesus said, I came that you might have life and life abundant. Life that's meaningful, life that's purposeful. What would you fill in that blank with? What you see here is that there's, a, there's a pattern of things that have been happening in the Old Testament from the very, very beginning. There's this attitude of there's this thing that stands in front of me And I can either accept what God has or I can accept the status quo. I can accept who God's telling me I am. I can accept 
these new things from God, or I can just accept where things are at now. And the first time that we see it is in Genesis 3, 6, and 7. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, this is the one tree that God told Adam and Eve not to eat from, she stands in front of it and lets the, the serpent explain to her how God was keeping something from them, and as soon as you eat, it's gonna be good for you. And she saw that the tree was good for food, and it was delightful to the eyes that there was a tree that was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The, the first couple words of that, the woman saw that the tree was good for food. There's this attitude throughout of see something, want something, take something, even though it's not what God has for you. I see it, it fits with something that I like, I want it, it fits with my desires, I take it because it feels good to me. And you hear that and you're like, okay, this, this is starting to hit home just a little bit now because whether it's lust and pornography, whether it's saying a little something so that someone likes you a little bit more, whether it's that post that you know that you can throw online that people will really, really like and will make you feel a certain way, maybe it's working a little bit hard so that people will really value you dressing a certain way so that people will value you. We see something that we like. We want it. It fits with how the desires that we have, and we take it. But that leads to the second point is that sin breaks and divides. There's, there's a plan that God has for us, and when we don't follow that plan, it doesn't just like, ah, oh, you just kind of fell off the map a little bit. It breaks and divides what God had planned for us. So li listen to Moses' response to these guys' request of, can we just stay here? Moses has led these people who are frustrating to lead 40 years through the, the desert, and they stop on the goal line. And this is what he says. But Moses said to the people of Gad and to the people of Reuben, shall your brothers go to the war while you sit here? See, there was even an understanding that, and you can read it in Joshua. Joshua is the one who takes them into the promised land. And it's not like promised land, we got here, everything's soft and fuzzy, we just lay down all the time and eat big grapes. Like the, the attitude is like, we gotta fight for this still. Even though God led us to it, we still have to fight for it. And they knew that. So Moses asked them, are you, are you just going to sit here while your brothers go out to war? And then listen to, to the way that he phrases this and the story that he uses to help them know what they're doing. He says, why will you discourage the heart of the brothers that go, sorry, why will you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from whom over giving into the land the Lord has given to them? Your fathers did this. He's saying your disobedience will discourage the people that are doing what's right. Why? Because sin breaks and divides. When everyone's following what God wants to do and someone falls off of that, it breaks and divides the unity that God gives his people when they're walking towards a, a, a unified purpose. Sin breaks and divides. You'll discourage the heart of the people. And then he says, your fathers did this. So he gets ready to tell them a story. When I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land for when... They went up to the valley of Eskal and saw the land. They discouraged the heart of the people of Israel from whom the land that the Lord has given them. And the Lord's anger was kindled that day. And he swore, saying, Surely none of the men who came up out of Egypt from 20 years old and upward shall see the land 
that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob because they have not wholly followed me. None except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed the Lord. And the Lord's anger was kindled against them, and he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until all the generation had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. And behold, you have risen in your father's place, a brood of sinful men, to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will again abandon them in the wilderness and you will destroy all this people. He reminds them of the story of when they first encounter the, the promised land and he, Moses goes to his guys, the, the, the leaders of each of the tribes and he says, hey, everybody find one spy, one person that can be a scout to go and find, to go and do looking and seeing what it looks like. And 10 came back and said, man, there's some giants that live there. I don't know that we can take them. The land is good. Like there, there's some good things happening and it is what we, we thought it would be, but probably better than we thought it would be, but I don't think we can overtake the people. But Caleb and Joshua come back and they're like, they're, they're right about everything but their action plan coming off of it was different. They come in and they're like, no, 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 no. They're, yeah, you're right. There's some big old dudes there, but we can take them because God's on our side. So God's response, because their disobedience, their attitude of faithlessness discouraged the people. Why? Because sin breaks and divides. You don't ever hear someone that has a divisive word, that has a bad attitude, that gossips, that does things, and you're like, man, I heard something negative about you, and it just really made me love you more. No, that just doesn't happen. No one ever tells a lie to someone and they're like, I feel more connected to you knowing that you didn't tell me the truth. Sin breaks and divides. It pulls at people's trust. It, it makes you wonder if you're headed in the same direction. So you have these 10 men who said, I don't think we can do it. These two men that did, God said, you, you have divided the people where now they will not go into the place. So I'm gonna wait for the generation to die, but you know who will go is Caleb and Joshua and they'll get in. Sin breaks and divides. And you see that at the very end. For you will turn away from following him and will abandon them in the wilderness and you will destroy all this people. And they just kind of sit there at this crossroads of like, what do we do now? What happens at this juncture? Like, you want to stay here. I'm telling you it's not a good idea. How, how do we reconcile this difference? And the people come back, the two leaders of these tribes come back and they say, okay, what if we go with you and we fight these people, but then we come back? Can we do that? And Moses is like, sure. And what's interesting about this is it doesn't say like, that was a good plan, that plan honored God, that plan hurt. But what we do know is that God told them what to do and there were people who stopped short of what God told them to do. And you don't see it for a really long time. But if you read 2 Kings, I think 15, there's a king in Assyria who's growing in power and he's conquering different lands and different people. You know who the first two groups that he goes and conquers are? the tribes of Reuben and Gad. It takes a long time, but the people of Reuben and Gad pay the price for not following God. Here's the difficult thing about 
stopping short about settling from what God has for us. Sometimes you see the way that other people live and you're like, man, they're not serving as much as I am. I don't think they tithe, I'm pretty sure, judging by the way they, they spend. And it doesn't look like um, they're going to a small group and they're like happy. Like it seems like things are okay. And you're like, and here I am hanging out with people that are hard to be around. They're not really helping me that much. I'm giving some of my money to God. I'm serving and it's not really building me up that much. And you, you start to kind of go, yeah, well, the way that they're living is kind of helping. But the fuse on sin is longer than we see sometimes. Sin has a long fuse. We don't even see it burning sometimes. And sometimes we get away with sin and we're like, that wasn't too bad. Maybe that can happen again. It happens again, happens again, happens again. And it went from something that was one time to part of our habits and part of our character and part of what makes us up as a person. And then you look back and if you're older than high school in this room, you probably look back and go, man, I started doing some things freshman year. And by senior year, it was just part of who I was. Maybe you didn't pay for it freshman year. Maybe you didn't pay for it sophomore, junior, senior. But maybe that first year of college, it caught up with you. Maybe that first time you tried to be in a relationship and somebody tried to be close to you, it came out. Then it was hard. Then you got to see how sin divides and breaks. There's a story right after what I read about Adam and Eve about their children. And they had a moment where there was tension between them. One of them offered to God and God loved it and one of them offered to God and God didn't like it and he got angry. The younger one, Cain, got angry and instead of asking God, God, why did you not enjoy this and dealing with God in it, he took his anger out on someone else, on Abel, and he saw something he wanted to do. He knew that it would feel good, so he took it and he took his brother's life and killed him. Sin breaks and divides. It never builds up. Adam and Eve, the story that we read just a moment ago, there's the end of it where it says that they ate and their eyes were opened and they were naked and ashamed. Up to that moment, they were naked and unashamed. Their marriage was perfect. Their marriage, they were fully in knowledge of who the other person was and it was unifying. And instead, they sinned and they did things against God's plan and what happened? It divided and it broke them. In this story, it's a small piece of that. You have 12 tribes of Israel who have been together for years, years, generations. And they get to the end. They're on the finish line. And they say, hey, will a little sin hurt us? And it divides and it breaks them up. Sin divides and breaks and you've seen it. You know. You, you, you know what that brokenness feels like. You know what generational pain feels like in your family. You know what, when your parents have messed up, it affects you. Sin breaks and divides. We pay the price for it. 
they made a compromise and they lost sight of God's gift. When God offers us a gift, we have choices. We can accept it or we can deny it. And I think a lot of times when we try to deny it, there's a couple reasons. We don't like it as it's given to us. God, this is not the gift that I asked for in this timing. This is not what I wanted. I didn't want to be single this long. I didn't want to be this guy. I didn't want this gifting. I look at somebody else's gifting and I want that. God, why did you give this to me right now? It's not the timing that we wanted. Or we see what we currently have and we settle for it. We lose sight of God's gift. They gave up on the finish line and they settled for something less. You see it not just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. There's a story of Jesus, and there's this guy that comes up to him, and he's called the rich young ruler. He had money, he had time on his side, and he had power. And he came up to Jesus, and he's like, Jesus, I'm, I'm doing it all. Like, I'm, I'm trying to do my very best. I've tried to keep all your rules and all your laws and do everything that you've asked me to do. And Jesus is like, knowing that no person has been perfect, he's like, that's great. Can you do one thing for me? And the guy goes, absolutely anything. What is it? And Jesus says, sell everything that you have and come follow me. And it says that he went away sad because he had many things. What did you fill the blank in earlier with? What's keeping you from fully following Christ? What are you hanging on to in a way that does not honor God? There's two things I want you to see in verses Um, I think 11 and 12, it talks about the people who went into the promised land initially, and we talked about the consequences for them, but I want you to see the difference. Verses 11 and 12, it says, surely none of the men who came up out of Egypt from 20 years old and upward shall see the land that I swore to give them to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me. None except Caleb and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed me. God's plan is always better. God's plan is always better. But I think we have to understand how we want to look at that promise, how we want to look at what God, what God gives us and go, man, it, just, it didn't come the way that I wanted it to come and it didn't come in the timing that I wanted it to come and, and, and I'd just rather settle for my current situation. I'd just settle for the little bit of money that I make now. I'd rather settle for this little bit of sin. It's not really bothering anybody. I think I can just live this way. Instead, we have to weigh those things. And, and I, I almost use the word best, but I, but I almost like the idea of when there's a choice going, okay, what does God's word say? And is one thing going to honor God's word and is one thing not? And I think we're always going to look at the scale and go, okay, God's way is better. What about this other choice? Is this the better? No, God's way is better. Whatever we stack up to what God's word says is best for us, God's way will always be better. God's way will always be better. That's a phrase that I've tried to use in my own mind so that you know, if you're following Christ, you have the Holy Spirit in you and you know what it feels like and, and, and what his voice sounds like. And sometimes you just have to remind yourself, okay, like that person looks really busy. I don't think I could talk to them. I don't think, man, they, they, I just don't think it's the right time. You know what? God's way is better. Even if it means that whatever thought that you have of the worst case scenario of what following Christ will look like, God's way is still better. 
We end up sacrificing obedience to God for what man thinks about us, and we settle for less than what God has for us. And I think our life reflects it. I don't think anyone in the world is gonna be impacted in an eternal way for the kingdom of God by people who are not wholly following God. And you say that, and you're like, man, I know I've got so far to go. Part of that is just saying, God, I, I, I know what I can offer right now. You have all of me. Everything that I know of, you have all of me. And then when a new sin pops up, and you go, man, I didn't know I was capable of that. I didn't know that was living underneath the surface. You go, God, that's yours too. God, I want to be obedient with this. God, you have all of me. You have the whole part of me. I'm going to tell you a story about a man named William Borden. William Borden was an heir to um, the Borden family dairy fortune. And if you hear like Borden cheese or Borden dairy, that's his family. He was born in 1887. And it's thought that his family's fortune at the time of his birth was worth $2 billion in today's money. Uh, his parents were believers, and he gave his life to Christ at a young age. And if this tells you about how wealthy his parents were, when he graduated from high school at 16, they gave him a trip around the world. So he went to the Middle East, to Europe, and to China. And it was said in his journals that after he got back, he wrote down that he was broken for the hearts of the people that didn't know his God. And he wrote, I desire to be a missionary to these people. So he graduates and he goes to, I think, Yale. He goes to Yale University. And he tried his best to blend in and just be one of the people. And um, shortly thereafter, he started um, a Bible study um, with one other guy. It started with them praying before breakfast one day. And before they knew it, one other guy joined in and another guy joined in. And they had four or five people. And they would pray and they would read scripture and William Borden would talk about what that scripture means and what God's promises are. And before they knew it, the, the Bible study had caught fire and 1,000 of the 1,300 students of Yale were attending his Bible study. And it was said that in the beginning years that whenever they would try to bring new people in and they, they'd, everybody who was a part of it would have their own Bible study on their own time, then come together for this big Bible study and they'd, they'd each take some responsibility for people and they'd read the list of names of people that should be coming or people that wanted to invite. And then when it came to somebody's name that they knew was going to be difficult, was going to protest, was going to be not fun to deal with, they said that it would be quiet for a minute. They'd say the name. And it was crickets for a little bit. And then they said, without fail, William Borden would say, put him under my name. That he wanted the most difficult people on that list. One of his friends in a biography wrote that he said in the first couple weeks of school, say no to self and say yes to Jesus every time. Every time. Not just in the little decisions, not just in the big decisions, every time. Upon graduation, he received job offers from all over, big companies. He could have gone and worked for his parents, but he chose to go and be a missionary. He said this, he said, and I think he knew the irony of this statement. He says he realized he must always be about his father's business, not wasting time in the pursuit of his own amusement. And father's business is not meant to mean his father's empire, but meant to be his heavenly father's kingdom. His heart was set on being a missionary to China. 
and he was headed in that direction and he, he said that he needed to learn Arabic first. So he stopped in Cairo, Egypt, and he was there for 19 days. He had spinal meningitis and he died within 19 days of arriving there. And people ask the question, what was William Borden's life a waste? But it's believed to be that there are more people that are missionaries to China and around the world from what he started at Yale than anything else in that time period. And he never made it to the mission field. He never did the thing that he thought his life would be the most important. This is what he wrote in the back of his Bible. He wrote, no reserves, no retreats, and no regrets. The only way that you can say that is if you are fully following Jesus, wholly following him with your life. So I wanna ask you today, are you wholly following Jesus with your life or is there something you'd fill in the blank and say, I have to hang on to this?